This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. We're back. We took our winter break from the podcast, but we're back with several episodes on timely topics. Make sure that you subscribe to the show on your podcast app of choice and subscribe to our YouTube page with the handle ACLUPA for select episodes on video. For this episode, I talked with Dolly Prabhu, staff attorney with the Abolitionist Law Center, Kate Parker, director of policy, government, and community affairs at the Defender Association of Philadelphia, and Byron Cotter, director of the Alternative Sentencing Unit at the Defender Association. Dolly, Kate, and Byron talk about how probation works in Pennsylvania, how it harms people caught in the system, and why legislation currently before the State House of Representatives fails to effectively reform probation. ACLUPA has an action alert available where you can send a message of opposition to that bill to your state rep. A link to that and a link to our webpage on the bill are both available in the show notes. This conversation was recorded on March 15th. Dolly, Kate, Byron, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk about probation and and how it works in Pennsylvania and and, uh, the issues around reform. Really appreciate your time and your expertise. And Dolly, I want to start with you. We should probably do some table setting first so that listeners know what we're talking about. Can you explain the basics of probation, how it works, and what does a person experience when they're sentenced to probation? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I guess at a basic level, probation is a form of community supervision. Um, Unlike parole, which is a a form of early release from incarceration, probation is an initial sentencing decision made by a judge. Um, So individuals can be sentenced to probation in lieu of incarceration or in addition to incarceration. And it's actually becoming increasingly common for judges to tack on probation at the end of an incarceration sentence. So, for example, instead of just sentencing someone to uh, one year of incarceration, they might instead sentence them to one year of incarceration, followed by three years of probation. Um, And that kind of uh, instinct to tack on probation at the end of incarceration sentences is part of why uh, the probation population has grown so much. Um, And then, of course, when you're on probation, uh, there's a lot of rules you have to follow. You have to report to a probation officer. Um, You have to adhere to certain conditions of probation. And those conditions can actually vary quite a bit because judges can add pretty much anything as a condition of probation. Um, So some common conditions are uh, passing random drug tests. Um, staying in contact with the probation officer, which might require you to have a phone. Um, Having an address is a common boilerplate condition, so you can't be homeless um, or bouncing around from place to place. Uh, Finding employment is a common condition, even though other conditions ironically make it difficult to find employment. So a lot of times judges will impose a curfew, like you have to be home by 10 p.m. every night. Um, judges may say you're not allowed to be in contact with certain people, um, either because they have some kind of safety concern or maybe even they just think someone's a bad influence. So they can literally say you're not allowed to contact this individual or these types of individual who, individuals who say have a criminal record. Um, and so that condition in and of itself can make people jobless and homeless, um, paying fines and, and restitution is also a common condition of probation, Um, restitution being mandated repayment to some victim of a crime. 
Um, these victims can often be banks or corporations, um, and they can be quite large amounts. And so uh, because that is a condition of probation, a lot of the times, that's what keeps people in, in violation uh, of probation. And then also, you know, mandated programming is a, is a big thing that judges love doing. They love saying, you know, uh, take anger management classes or um, take these parenting classes. And, you know, that's difficult enough with transportation and scheduling around work. But on top of that, folks have to pay for that out of pocket and they're quite expensive. Um, for example, I know the, the DUI alternative to incarceration program is, I, I think, over $1,000. Um, so if folks can't afford that. They're technically in, in violation of probation. And so I, I'm going into that level of detail only because it's I'm just trying to show that it's really hard to not violate probation. Um, many of these folks also struggle with like mental health issues and substance use issues, which is a whole other level of complication. And so quite frankly, um, folks are set up to fail on probation a lot of the times. Um, and then what happens if you, if you do violate these conditions or if you commit a new crime, which is also considered a probation violation, um, you get a probation violation hearing. Um, but those usually take several months or even sometimes years to be scheduled. And unlike folks who aren't on probation, um, if you are on probation, judges can detain you pending that time up until your probation violation hearing is scheduled. Um, so you can't get out on bail necessarily. Um, and that's part of why so many of PA's jails are filled with people just waiting for a probation violation hearing, which, again, may just be an accusation that they've committed some non-criminal activity. Um, and then, you know, moving past that, when you actually do get your probation violation hearing, if a judge then finds that you've violated uh, your a condition of your probation, um, they have the discretion to resentence you uh, up to the maximum of what they could have for the underlying crime. Um, and usually that maximum means some period of incarceration. Um, they also can also sentence you to another period of probation. And so that happens a lot. And that's part of the cycle. People constantly violating their probation and having a new sentence of probation imposed over and over and over. And they stay on probation for, for years or decades because of that. Um, and so that's how people get trapped in that cycle. And um, kind of the takeaway is that a lot of times folks who are on probation end up spending more jail time overall than they would have had they just been sentenced to a period of incarceration to start. Um, so that's kind of just a, like a broad level overview of um, kind of some of the things that people on probation experience. Well, thanks for that, because that really sets up what we're talking about here when it comes to reform. And Byron, I want to pivot over to you because on its face, probation, as Dolly said, might sound like a reasonable alternative to incarceration, but in practice, it's really not that simple. From your view, what are the flaws with probation in Pennsylvania? Why does it need to be reformed? Well, let me just say that my expertise is in the county of Philadelphia. So um, I think Dolly can expand upon the whole state. But one thing that Dolly said was a sentence, and there has to be a min and max sentence. So she talked about a one-year incarceration sentence. So that sentence would be one to two years normally. Um, a state sentence, then followed by, as she said, three or four years probation. So the way um, we look at it at the Defender Association is the supervision period. Now, the parole officer and the probation officer are the same person. So if a client was sentenced to one to two years, um, the first year he'd be incarcerated. The second year he'd be 
under parole for a year. So we consider that one year of supervision. And then he would be under three, say, let's say three years probation consecutive to that state sentence. And so that would make it four years supervision. Um, what we do in Philadelphia is, and is to limit that period of supervision because it's at some point the supervision became, becomes onerous to the client. It, it, it's an impediment to that client succeeding and not recidivating. And that's what we're all trying to achieve. To lower the recidivism rate makes the city of Philadelphia and the state of Pennsylvania much, much safer. Um, and a lot of the things that Dolly talked about is, is things we try to accomplish by filing terminations if, if of probation. If a client's doing extremely well and, and we have an agreement with a district attorney in Philadelphia <laughs> for 18 months of supervision so that we would take that one year of parole that he was out. And then instead of the three years probation, after six months, we would file a petition to terminate the remaining probation if the client's doing well and in compliance with that parole slash probation officer. Um, so I do believe that probation can be a useful alternative, especially to incarceration. Um, if, if Instead of incarcerating a person, which I, I feel in most cases does not reduce recidiv recidivism, it only increases it. So we can place the client on probation, but for a a time that the client will be able to use that probationary period in the probation officer and the courts. And we also work with the clients during that probationary period. It, it will help the client become successful, that they, uh, there will be a needs um, analysis made of the client and those needs will be provided so that after a term of 18 months supervision, we would then ask that the client be terminated. That is enough for he should go forward and become a successful citizen in the, in the city. Um, the, as Dolly said, if you get out, you know, some judges will sentence one to two years and 10 years probation. Well, the, then the client, he looks at, at that sentence as there's no light at the end of the tunnel. How is he ever going to make, I'm doing, they'll come into my office all the time. Mr. Cotter, I'm doing so well, but I have eight more years of probation. My employer says he won't, you know, let increase my salary or, or raise my position at the company until I'm, I'm off of probation. What can I do? How do I handle this? So that's when we file this termination and we're very successful. Judges love to hear a success story. So the citizens of Philadelphia. So if a client is successful, we're very, uh, you know, we can tell the judge about this story and, and, um, they, the judges will then terminate in most cases, I would say about 85% of the time. Um, and of course, it depends upon if the crime was a very serious crime, then we, we may not file the, for the termination right away within 18 months. We may push it out a little. But, you know, it's very important for the client to have that light at the end of the tunnel to say, I'm going to be off of it. I can tell my employer and I can move up in the world. Um, I can buy a house. I can move to a outside of Philadelphia. I can move to a county or to a, a state down south where I can get away from all this environment that created me to commit crime. So, so I agree that probation can be a good tool, but only for a certain length of time. And I'm I glad you go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that 
current law, under current law, there is the ability to ask to terminate early. That's going to be an important part of what we discuss here in, in a few minutes. Um, Kate, well, oh, go ahead, Byron. But I want to just say in the bill, it's like five years, which is way too long. Yeah, uh, we, we do it much in a much shorter period here. And we've been very successful. And the recidivism rate of the people we get terminated is extremely, extremely low. Most people in, in Philadelphia do well in, in probation. Only about 6% of our clients um, are having problems. And it's, it's usually the clients um, that have a high, what they call a high risk score that the probation office department uses to evaluate a client. We call it the black box. The University of Pennsylvania created this algorithm to try to figure out what clients were a higher risk than others. Unfortunately, instead of supplying the needs that those clients need to, to make them successful, it puts onerous conditions on them. Report, mm-hmm. you know, once a week, um, you, you come and visit at their homes. If this client's employed, every time the employer, you know, says, well, we got to work today, John. And, and John says, well, I got to report to my probation officer. You know what's going to happen to that client? John's going to be fired because they don't want to deal with it. So, um, you know, again, you have to look at probation as a tool to help the client to keep them out of trouble and create a successful um, end to this client's story. So and the, and the other thing, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm on a roll. Uh, Dolly talked about how long a client stays. So in, in Philadelphia, we try to have that first Gagnon one hearing or hearing within 10 days you know, to see if that client should be detained in jail. What, you know, it should be, we would like to see even quicker and we're trying to, to do accomplish that. Uh, but, you know, if a client's compliant and he's arrested on a nonviolent new charge, there's no, uh, no reason that client should be detained in jail because of that open case. Um, he should be allowed to be remain on the street, continue to report to his probation officer until that case is resolved. And in many instances, that case will be thrown out. And there was no reason for that client to ever be detained at all. So we're, we try to address uh, the Gagnon one hearing within 10 days uh, and uh, con- continually to review that case. If the judge holds them, uh, we will continually to file if cha- things change with a new case or client's conditions, we will file petitions to lift those detainers. So we're constantly reviewing any client that's in jail on a detainer. And just to be clear, to so that folks understand what we're talking about, you're talking about the hearing that occurs when a person has been accused of a violation of their probation. Correct, correct. Because in some counties, they, they sit there for months and months. As Dolly said, and that's absolutely true, and we've uh, been successful in Philadelphia to uh, move these uh, hearings along very quickly. So for, so for the clients that, um, you know, have been complying on probation and doing well, except for this hiccup maybe of a new arrest, then we immediately try to get him out. And uh, that the violation hearing or the Gagnon 2 hearing will be after the case has been resolved. And as Dolly said, that case could take a year before it's resolved. And this guy could be sitting in jail for no reason at all. Right. And then he loses his job, his apartment you know, uh, his family, everything. 
And just while we're on the topic of, of Gagnon 1 hearings, which are the initial probable cause hearing when someone is accused of a probation violation hearing, that's intended to prevent them from, from sitting so long um, awaiting their actual, their Gagnon 2 hearing, which is where they decide whether or not there was, where the judge makes a finding whether or not there was a probation violation hearing. Um, I will say that, you know, I can't speak for Philadelphia County, but I, I can certainly speak for Allegheny County. Um, Gagnon 1 hearings, uh, at least here, and I'm sure that's not unique to, to this county, are very, very perfunctory. Um, a lot of times there is not a probable cause finding made, but it doesn't matter. People are still continue to be detained. So there's a lot of issues with that initial Gagnon 1 hearing that um, in a lot of cases makes it virtually defunct. Um, so that's part of why, at least what I've observed in Allegheny County, um, when folks are accused of probation violations, regardless of what even comes up at their Gagnon 1, if anything, if they're given the opportunity, they still sometimes sit. Um, so that that's a level of detail that I don't know if we have <laughs> any more time to get into, but that's at least been my observation on this side of the state. So yeah, that's important. And ACLU has pending litigation in Montgomery County over, over detainers. Byron, were you going to add something else there? Well, I, you know, that can be a problem. We, we do interview our clients. We we sort of have two Gagnon 1 hearings in Philadelphia. We have the first ones within 10 days before the trial commissioner. Then the second one will be before the actual violation judge. within that, And that's usually within a week after the first one. So we're going to have the trial commissioner and the judge within hopefully two weeks. We're going to have two hearings to see if we can get that detainer lifted. So, and we've interviewed the client uh, and our lawyers are prepared to go argue why the detainer should be lifted. And then if the client still detainers and lifted and we feel that it should have been, we'll then file a petition in writing asking the judge to reconsider. So we go, we go after that because we think the prison population, a lot of it's caused by detainers. Um, that don't need to be lodged. So we're always trying to get those detainers withdrawn until the outcome of the open case. Or if it's a technical violation, we're going to try to resolve that within two to three weeks at the, at the most. If he, if he needs treatment from the Gagnon one from the first before the trial commissioner, we're discussing that with a client. So we try to get treatment in place and programs in place within two to three weeks. So from what Dolly and Byron have described, it seems like there is a lot of room for potential reform of probation in Pennsylvania. And Kate, you work in policy. So before we get into what we're actually dealing with in the legislature, I want to give you the power of the pen. Uh, you could write a bill. Uh, what would be the ideal reform legislation? What would be the key provisions in, in, a, in a good reform bill? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andy. I think that's a great question, right? And and I want to note that reasonable minds might disagree, right? I want to note that right at the outset and that our recommendations come from our direct practice. And it's, what you're going to hear me echo is that the legislation should address some of the main concerns that both Dolly and Byron have raised, right? And what I'd like to see is us to start with a very clear legislative intent, that the intent is to shrink the probationer population to reduce prison admission and jail admissions that stem from alleged violations and to eliminate racial disproportionality in the probationer population. And if we started with that clear legislative intent and agreement that those are the goals of the bill, then we can actually start to talk about what provisions need to be included to achieve those goals, right? And where I would start is with a prospective 
racial impact statement. How do we think that the provisions of this bill that we're gonna introduce are gonna impact communities of color throughout the Commonwealth? What impact are they gonna have on the prison admissions? What impact are they gonna have on daily detention rates in the county jail? What impact are they gonna have on the supervision levels of the people um, who are currently under supervision? And from, from there, we can start to really have meaningful conversations about whether the specific provisions are going to help us meet these three objectives, right? And then everybody has access to that information when making the decision. It doesn't come down to advocates saying, you know, just try this or just trust this, or this is going to improve this problem. The very specific provisions that we would like to see included, that I would include if I had this pen, right, this, this magical mythical pen and could change the world today, are exactly what Dolly and Byron are talking about. We would look for caps on the length of probationary sentences, and it would be research-driven. You know, there's a lot of different research available to us right now, and, and folks kind of disagree about six months or eight months. There's really not that much dispute that after 15 months, the research is very clear that there's no need to continue supervision. And if we could establish a cap that's driven by the research and supported by the research, we'd go a long way to reducing and shrinking that probationary population. And then we have to put in some protections for the things that we are kind of culturally accustomed to, the over-dependence on these stacked sentences, the over-dependence on these probationary tales, the over-dependence on extending without really a lot of thoughtfulness about the need for continued supervision, right? And we want to protect against that because we have a strong culture of that in our commonwealth already. And so we need a clear legislative mandate that this is not how we're going to do business anymore, right? We would then look to have um, really establish this summons process for all violations of probation, exactly what Dolly and Byron are talking about right now. When we look at these unnecessary brief periods of incarceration for people who are waiting for their Gagnon hearings, we can avoid all of that by having a summons process. And even if for people, even if people have new charges, there's an entire process of setting bail on that new offense that we can rely on if that person, if detention is absolutely required while those charges are pending. Right? There's an entire process that already exists for that. We don't need to address it through a blanket understanding or a blanket acceptance of the issuance of a warrant or a detainer for someone because of alleged new charge. Right? We would then have strong presumptions against incarceration for technical violations. Strong presumptions without exception, without exclusion, without carving out exceptions to the rule. We would start there. And then we would also want to see a presumption in favor of the least restrictive sanctions that would be necessary to protect public safety in the event of a violation for some other behavior, right? And that the judge would have to make a very specific finding that there's no supports that are available into the, in the community for the person that could provide a reasonable assurance of public safety. That we have to vet that out. We have to look at it. We have to see incarceration as the last resort the absolute last option, and create strong presumptions in, in place for least restrictive sanctions. I would also like to see, um, well, a mandatory data collection and reporting process that every county report 
who is being violated, how many people are being violated, the types of violations, the sanctions that are imposed, the revocations and the incarcerations, the admissions into the county jail and into the state prison. And we need to disaggregate that according to race, gender and ethnicity. And if we see disproportionality above a value, right, say 8%, say 10% between how communities of color and their white counterparts are treated in this system, then we need to have a mandatory remedial response in place where the probation office and the courts work together with the communities that they serve to create alternatives to custodial sentences. That's where I would start, right? And and we're not asking for things that are completely impossible, right? The Sentencing Commission is tasked with providing that type of analysis on recommendations for changes to the probation guidelines, recommendations for changes to the parole guidelines, recommendations for changes to sentencing guidelines, right? And so they are in a position to be able to say, this is what this change, this proposal, this is the impact that we think it's gonna have on custodial sentences throughout the Commonwealth and break it out by county. We have to accept the fact that there is no average Pennsylvanian right, that we are a commonwealth of very different counties with very different needs. And so when we're looking at the data, we have to recognize that. And that, that's really where I would start. I would also add, and this goes a little bit to something that Dolly raised, that at the sentencing, we need to start having meaningful ability to pay hearings for people who are placed on periods of probation, fines, fees, costs, restitution, we need for the court to assess at that moment whether it is reasonable to ask this person to repay that back. And this not only helps benefit the arrestee, but it also allows if there is an actual, like an actual victim, a human person who has suffered a loss, to be able to make reasonable plans for whether they can expect to recover those, those funds or not. It allows everyone to move forward um, with a clear understanding of what to expect. And I would create a process where people who have not met those obligations following an ability to pay hearing, where the, those debts can be transferred to civil collections. There's no need for the criminal system to maintain oversight over people who have not paid a bill. Though there is a civil process and those can be, those can be transferred to civil collections. And the fines and fees issue is also in the middle of this bill too. So I, I definitely want, I'm glad you raised that. So, so we're not uh, working with Kate's bill. We're working with uh, a Senator's bill, uh, Senate bill 913. And Dolly, I want to ask you, start with you uh, on as we start to talk about this, this legislation, you know, some are posing it as reform, but there are also more than 50 social justice organizations that have actually come out against the bill including Abolitionist Law Center and the ACLU of PA. So I want to dig into some of the provisions. Um, we talked a bit about caps and how long people are on probation. One of the things in this bill is uh, it create the bill creates a review conferences after a person has been on probation for a certain period of time with the possibility of termination of their sentence. Um, now, we've talked a little bit already about the fact that you can go into court now and ask for early termination. Um, from your perspective, Dolly, what's wrong with that approach with these review conferences? Yeah, so there's a, a few big problems with that approach, some of which we already mentioned. Um, one that was kind of touched on a bit is that, you know, folks are only eligible for these conferences after 
three years if the underlying charge is a misdemeanor, five years if it's a felony. Um, that's a really long amount of time. And, and honestly, it's it's far more common for folks who are on probation for a long time to be in the situation I described earlier of having short sentences that are constantly revoked and reimposed back to back to back. And people in that category are never going to be eligible for these review conferences. Um, even for folks who do have these longer periods of probation, um, there are still eligibility restrictions um, about, you know, not being able to, or not having been charged of certain or convicted of certain crimes, um, not having convicted or not having uh, committed any technical violations recently, um, and, and and other things that seriously limit uh, eligibility. And, you know, even then, even for folks who check all the boxes, um, like Byron mentioned, there's already a process in place for early termination, a fairly straightforward process. And so there's a concern that um, introducing these this convolute, convoluted process will confuse the process that already exists and maybe even dissuade judges um, from terminating probation early because they instead will rely on this process, which in, in my opinion is far worse. Um, and so there's a very real possibility that because of just how complex this process is and how restricted it is, um, it may actually result in less early terminations of probation. So, um, you know, it, it, it's not a great process. And, you know, even then, it's not even presumptive early termination. It's just we're still only talking about eligibility for review conference. Like that, that is the best that we've been that this bill has been able to provide. And even then, with all these problems, so yeah, there are, are a few major issues and some that I, I would I would say even risk making this bill more harmful than helpful. Kate, the supporters of SB 913 also say that they want to keep people out of jail for violations that are not new crimes, but there's a lot of skepticism about whether the language of the bill will do that. Why is that? And I think the skepticism is due to the, <clears throat> the significant exclusions to people who would be presumptively not um, eligible for periods of incarceration for technical set for technical violations, right? And so if you if you read the bill carefully, yeah, there's this strong presumption against incarceration for technical violations, right? Period. And we could just stop there. And that would be a great improvement over our current um, landscape. But instead, they've carved out five exceptions to that presumption against incarceration, right? And unfortunately for us in Philadelphia, and I can't speak to the rest of the Commonwealth. But for us in Philadelphia, when we looked at the data for a two month period of time, two of those exceptions accounted for 75% of the, the technical violations that were coming before the court, Wow! right? And so the overwhelming number of people who are coming in for technical violations are behaviors that you see that are, are attributable to not complying with mental health treatment, perhaps not fully engaging with their substance abuse treatment program, becoming fearful and not reporting or otherwise absconding from probation. That's the overwhelming majority of the people who are committing technical violations. And so for people who are either direct practitioners in the city of Philadelphia, and I imagine in other counties, I don't know that there's that many other ways that you can violate probation in the way that they file violations. Right. Like what what else aren't you doing? Right. 
if you're not reporting and you're not complying with a substance abuse treatment program or a mental health treatment program, right? In, in today's world, can, can you really be violated for not having gainful employment? Can you really be violated for some of these other behaviors? It doesn't leave a lot left, right? And that's why people are very skeptical about whether or not the bill will truly provide the kinds of protections that we're, that we're calling for. The other part is, as Byron mentioned and Dolly alluded to in other counties, here in, in Philadelphia, our folks for technical violations are doing their sentence up front, right? They're doing it before they get to their Gagnon hearing. Mm. And so what we really need, if we really want to protect against technical violations resulting in periods of incarceration, we look at that process. We look at how people are brought to court to address that initial hearing and whether or not they're in custody pending that hearing and how long that hearing takes to be scheduled from the time of their initial entry into the system. We've talked a bit about fines and costs and restitution issues. Byron, can you talk a bit, can you explain how outstanding debts currently impact the person's probation status? And and what do you think about the impact of the bill's provision of administrative probation for people who owe restitution? Well, I, I, uh, Kate's the expert on the bill, but I just want to say that what I teach at our office is that the ability to pay should be addressed at sentencing to see if a client has the ability to pay supervision fees, um, costs, and restitution. If the client doesn't have the ability to pay, then we're, we're creating a violation before we even start. Um, so a judge should consider this, question the client. Now, if for some reason in the future, the client's ability to pay changes, then we can go back and address whether or not the client can pay those supervision fees, uh, those costs, and that restitution. Um, it, you know, what in Philadelphia, no one's going to be incarcerated if they don't have the ability to pay these costs. But the probation could be continued forever, which again then hurts them getting the ability to pay because they can't get employment while they're on probation. They can't uh, move up in their, if they have a job, move up in their employment. So it, it, it really creates a quagmire for the client if he doesn't have the ability to pay. Um, they, can't, they can't get a, a, a rent of an apartment. They can't get a house if they have to pay these costs. And, believe, and you know when they go in to see their probation officer, their probation officer is always saying, you have to pay these costs. You have to pay these supervision fees, which creates another reason why the client then will abscond because he just, he, you know, he's fearful that he's going to get locked up because he, he doesn't have the, the ability to pay these costs and fines and restitution. So that's the way I look at it. It should be addressed from, from the very beginning at sentencing. Um, right now, we're trying to get judges to do that. But it's been a fight. And, and I think that should be part of the legislation, that it should be mandatory that judges address this before they issue these fines and costs and supervision fees and this massive amount of restitution that Dolly said that the client will never pay. Now, what happens in Philadelphia, that they may end the probation, he's been compliant, but he has, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars 
because he didn't pay his supervision fees, his fines and costs. And that becomes a lien. So when he goes to, to get a car, to go to work, to, to buy a house for his family, they show up and he can't do that. So many, again, clients will come in and say, is there any way, Mr. Cotter, that we can address these, these old fines and costs that may have been years later, that he hasn't been arrested for five, 10 years, but these are still creating these liens against him and he has to get them off so that he can move up with his life, move forward, buy a home, get a car, so that we then will go back to the judge and try to explain and ask them to to what we call remit those fines and costs. But it's it's a challenge. And like I say, I would like to see the legislation address that at sentencing. Dolly, your thoughts on that? Do you have anything? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess like in terms of SB 13's way, the way it's addressing this issue, which is quite poorly, <laughs> is by creating a whole new form of probation for people who only owe restitution. Like that's their only violation. Um, and I will say I do very often observe that there are a lot of people who are on probation only for that reason, only because they owe a large amount of restitution. And folks say up front in court, I'll be paying this off for the rest of my life and the judge will not agree. Like it, it's it's an open secret. Um, and the way uh, this bill addresses it is, again, by expanding probation, which is the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. First of all, it's completely unnecessary because judges are able to end probation even if folks owe restitution. Kate mentioned this earlier. They can still, um, there are still other ways to, to collect that, that amount that's owed without requiring that person to be on probation. So judges have that power and that's really what we should be pushing for. And if anything, legislation could be requiring that, you know, folks who only owe restitution should not be on probation. That's just keeping people uh, uh, in community supervision for being poor. Um, that, that's what it boils down to. Um, and, you know, I think this really gets to the heart of a lot of the, the problems with criminal justice reform is that a lot of times these well-meaning reforms end up doing more harm than good. Um, you know, even probation was a reform and now it's a primary driver of mass incarceration. Um, so we should be trying to reduce the scale of community supervision, not growing it and, you know, creating another form of probation to address the problems of probation is just absolutely not the direction that we should be going. I want to be sure I'm understanding this correctly because I think this is a really important issue. My understanding is that courts are supposed to consider a person's ability to pay, but from what you're saying, Byron, it sounds like that just doesn't happen. And Dolly, you're saying that people end up with fines and fees and restitution and just their probation just ends up going on and on because of that. Am I, do I have that? Is, is, did I summarize that well? <laughs> that's correct. Um, and is, is that, what it, it causes a client to just give up many times. Um, if a you know, the client owes $50,000 and he's barely making a living. He's trying to support his family. You know, he lives paycheck to paycheck. He's never going to have the ability to pay that. And at some point, he's just he's going to stop, you know, um, coming back to see the judge. He's going to abscond. A warrant's going to go out. And then then there goes everything. There goes his job, his housing, his any benefits he may be receiving. So, you know, it's a catch-22 for the client. That That's why I'm saying the judge from day one has to address the ability to pay. I, I think from my understanding as well, 
if judges want to violate folks for um, not paying restitution, I believe they're supposed to make a finding that there was they willfully did not pay. Yes, um, that's the law. But I that is not what happens. And I mean, again, speaking for Allegheny County, I've sat in hundreds of, of gag non two hearings that determination does not get made at all. Um, and even in fact, even if it's established that the individual through no fault of their own did the best they can and tried to pay it off, it does not matter. Judges will still continue uh, their pro or revoke and reimpose a new period of probation. And so this gets to, I think, maybe a problem with judicial education and, you know, the limits of, you know, even if the law changes positively, you know, we probation relies heavily or it gives judges a lot of discretion. So, you know, a lot of the times judges don't follow the law, maybe because they don't know it or because, you know, no one's really held them to it. Um, and I know that, you know, even uh, public defenders who are in court a lot, a lot of times it's hard for, for them to advocate for their clients because they're in front of the same judges over and over. And so they're, they're trying to get the best outcome for their clients um, and in front of judges that, you know, sometimes punish their clients for uh, a public defender's advocacy. At least that that is what I've observed. Um, and so there's a real problem with judicial education around this issue. Um, I, I don't think they realize it's illegal and, you know, that it's definitely, you know, a, a very common practice. I'm not a lawyer. I come at this work from an activist and advocate perspective. Um, but this provision around administrative probation for restitution is from a layperson's perspective is just one of the most mind blowing parts of this bill. Like I don't see with all of the work that's been done to educate the public and legislators about the impact of the criminal legal system on people living in poverty to put this provision in is just, I, I, I'm flabbergasted to be perfectly frank with you. You know, Andy, one of the things that might be important to highlight is something that Byron mentions earlier, right? The overwhelming number of people who are on probation are actually against all odds doing really well, right? And for those of us who, who worked with clients, you know, it's very easy to only focus on the people who are coming back into the system for violations, because we don't always hear from everybody who is doing excellently and just sort of living their life under this, uh, this constant watch of supervision. And from a resource stewardship perspective, that's like a really bad idea, right? We have a group of people who are super high needs. They need lots of support in order to be able to do all of the things that maybe they want to do to successfully reintegrate back into the community. And they don't have the resources to do that because we still have tens of thousands of people who the probation officers still have to check in with, who they still have to like monitor, who they still have to schedule time for, who they still have to have phone calls and home visits for who don't need any of that, who maybe never did. And we don't have a system in place to like review that and to say, are we really using our resources efficiently or are we using them in a way that just sets people up to fail and sets people up who never needed this level of supervision in the first place to fail? Like people who weren't gonna fail. We've now created opportunities for them to do it without providing the types of supports or investments into the folks who maybe need them. And I would just highlight that for the folks listening at home, 
because we focus so much on the people who are in quote unquote violation status when the overwhelming majority of the people who are on probation as public defenders, we never see them again. Right. That may be the answer to my last question for you, Kate, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, you know, the Defender Association offers its expertise to legislators so they can make informed decisions. If there are any legislators or staff listening to this, what's the most important message for them to take away from this conversation? I think demanding the data on this bill, if I had to pick one, it would be, do you know in your county how many people are in violation status? How many people are not? How many people will be impacted by this bill in the county that you represent? And how will this impact the costs to your local jail, the costs to the Department of Corrections? How will this impact the cost, the human cost to the communities that we serve? And, and I would just start with that. Demand the data because it's there and it's available. And if we haven't seen it and we haven't talked about it, why not? I, I think having been on committees statewide, that the county commissioners, if they look at the costs of supervising a client on probation, when they don't need to be, when they're successful, and as you know, Kate said, the large majority in Philadelphia are successful, why spend that money? It's not necessary. It doesn't help anyone, and it only hurts the probationer. Dolly, do you want to weigh in on this question too? If there was a state rep, there's a state representative who's on the fence about this legislation or a staffer who could influence them, anything particular they need to hear? You know, I would have start if you had asked me first, I would have said to, to focus on probation detainers and scaling those back and relying instead on unbilled determination hearings, as Kate mentioned earlier. Um, since, you know, in my, at least in Allegheny County, the probation detainers are the primary driver of pretrial incarceration. But honestly, what, what Kate mentioned is so, so important. I really just want to echo that um, a lot of the, the changes that we would propose, maybe the three of us here, would become no-brainers, I think, if, if this data was publicly available. And probation departments do collect this data internally. They just don't share it. Um, you know, and in Allegheny County, I, I'll say, you know, one statistic that comes up often is that our county is 13% black, but our county jail is 66% black. And if we looked at, and you know, most of the people in our jail are uh, being held there for probation detainers. Um, and so if we were able to look at, you know, that breakdown of like, are there just a few judges who are responsible for this? You know, like what, why are people even being detained? Why are detainers being lodged? Is there a difference between what people are detained for if they're white or black or some other race? Um, all those questions, I think if we had the answers to them, it would be very, very clear that, you know, these reforms, even reforms that sound radical are honestly long overdue. So I, I would absolutely echo that call to um, to demand that, you know, counties who are, you know, probation at the county level is very, um, because each county has its own kind of fiefdom, um, it's very idiosyncratic. Um, and so if counties did uh, publicize that data um, or were required to more specifically, I think that would help push a lot of this reform that we were asking for. Uh, Dolly, if people want to learn more about Abolitionist Law Center, where can they go for more information? 
Um, our, our website is abolitionistlawcenter.org. Uh, we're, we're also on social media. We're on Facebook um, and on Twitter and Instagram. I, I believe our handle is abolitionistlc. So yeah, they can follow us on, on any of those forms of, of media. And Cade and Byron, my the defenders on social media as well. Is that right? I feel like you. I've seen some uh, some things from you all from time to time. We are. We have a Twitter handle. It's at Philly Defenders. Um, we also have a comprehensive website. If people are listening and they want information on how to terminate their probation early, um, we have a, a radio button where you can directly link right to Byron. Um, if people are interested in expungement or record sealing, um, we also have a referral form for you to fill out um, and it goes right to our expungement unit um, so that we are hoping um, people will come to us uh, when they want to come off probation, when they want to get their records sealed, and when they want to get their records expunged. Um, and we're here to help with that as well. And that's phillydefender.org. Well, Dolly, Kate, uh, Byron, thank you all so much. Really appreciate your time. This has been a uh, really in-depth and helpful conversation, and hopefully it will be an influential conversation, too. We will keep working on this legislation, and if we have to stop it, that's what we'll do. If we can make it better, we'll, we'll try to do that, too. So um, thank you all for your insights. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. for the time, Andy. That's Dolly Prabhu of Abolitionist Law Center and Kate Parker and Byron Cotter of the Defender Association of Philadelphia. My thanks to all three of them for their time and for sharing their expertise. If you're not following us on social media, do so now. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, all with the handle at ACLUPA. That brings episode 70 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet, and our video editor is Betsy Dorsett. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.